contracts, salary caps. Why do our favorite teams make some of the moves they do? It's usually the money. It's time for the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Hey there, boys and girls. Welcome to another edition of the Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. It's going to be a Brandt's Rants edition. I'm going to talk about NFL versus NBA salaries. NBA so much in the news these couple weeks with free agency, how strong these contracts are, especially compared to NFL deals. We'll talk about the anthem policy. The union was ignored. Now they're fine a grievance. We'll talk about LaShawn McCoy's struggles, the franchise tag deadline. Lots to cover in the business of sports with Andrew Brent in this episode, which is sponsored by Mottenbau Jeans. These are beautifully handcrafted jeans. It's evident. The second you put on the pair, they're so comfortable and so easy to wear. Finest denim from the best mills in the world. It's so easy to wear, and their 35-year history of sourcing really comes through. So I can tell you from wearing them right now, ridiculously comfortable. You feel the difference when you put it on. Good looking, kind of a classic clean style, fair price, half the price of these other designer jeans. And they've got a home try-on program, prepaid, pre-printed shipping label. Just send it back if you don't like the pair. So how do you get it? You go to unique promo code business. That's business of sports, all business, all caps, B-U-S-I-N-E-S-S, all caps, com. And a promo code BUSINESS, you can get these wonderfully handcrafted jeans with a home try-on program at a great price. So visit mottenbow.com, enter promo code BUSINESS, and enjoy. And as I said, it's a Brant's Rants edition of the Business of Sports. So much going on in around the business of sports. And again, this is supposed to be a slow time in the NFL, but not so slow. And I'll tell you why with a couple things going on. And bring you into NBA contracts, something I wrote about in Sports Illustrated comparing NFL and NBA contracts and the sort of the justifications, rationalizations that are always made why NFL players don't have the contracts that NBA players. I'll talk about some of those as we look into that. But we'll talk. start talking about the anthem policy once again. So here we are again. And then I'll get to the LaShawn McCoy and a couple other things as we go forward with this Brant's Rants edition of the Business of Sports here in the middle of July. One thing I want to talk about with this anthem policy, it's deja vu all over again, right? So back in 2014, remember the Ray Rice fiasco. Remember the firestorm that was going on when you had Ray Rice, the video come out, September 8th, 2014. I think the NFL changed as of that date. Within the next few days, or maybe a week or two, You had Adrian Peterson, pictures of him beating his son with a switch come out. You had pictures of Greg Hardy and and the terrible things he allegedly did to his girlfriend. All of this was swirling in the air in that time in 2014, I'd say within September, October. And with this going on, you have this craziness about what are they going to do? What's the NFL? What kind of... You had... Uh, reporters come on say I can't cover the NFL anymore primarily female reporters you had this where's Roger Goodell he's hiding what are they going to do that the league is full of thugs craziness and what came out of this three months later December 2014 was a brand spanking new conduct policy remember that six game baseline for anything associated with domestic violence or misconduct towards women and then there was something called paid leave there was an exemplus which was pulled out of the cobwebs to use with Adrian Peterson and Greg Hardy. All of this was going on and kind of they're making up as, as they went along. I think what really happened there was they had to keep Hardy and Peterson off the field. And Rice, of course, no one was signing Rice even after he won his grievance. They could not go to sponsors, their corporate uh, Disney, etc. 
and sell this product with those guys on the field. So they got them off with the exemplars. So we get to the end of 2014 and proudly with fanfare, December meetings. I remember I was covering them for ESPN. They unveiled this new conduct policy and it had the following terms, a six game baseline suspension, paid leave, exemplist, when you sort of had someone like a Hardy or Peterson do something bad, they couldn't get to the bottom of that at the time. They put them on this exemplist, which was usually for things like players coming off suspension, give them an extra week. Now they use it towards this. So my whole point in explaining all this is at the time they went into crafting this new conduct policy, the NFL proudly said, we talked to women's groups, we talked to military, we talked to corporate, and they even kind of mentioned we talked to the union, but they didn't really pay attention to the union. They crafted the policy. The union was clearly against things like the exemplist and paid leave and taking players off the field, and they crafted it anyway. And lo and behold, there was a grievance following that where the union said, wait a minute, we need to be involved. This stinks. This is no good. Long story short, the grievance failed. The policy continues. But since then, we really haven't seen anyone on the exemplist. And I'll mention the LaShawn McCoy thing going on now could be a perfect candidate textbook case for that. Well, now the anthem policy, and we've been going through this since Colin Kaepernick sat or Neil two years ago. And back and forth. Well, lo and behold, in May, at the owners' meeting, without coaches, without players, after all the things that have gone on, they craft a new anthem policy. If you're going to protest, stay in the locker room. If you don't, come out in the field. It's fine. We're not going to have protesters on the field. Discipline from the teams, not the league, if they choose to. Okay, whatever. A clumsy approach. What does it mean if you hold your hand up? What is it? Does that mean people have to stay in the locker room and some people go on the field, some stay in the locker room? Just didn't answer a lot of the questions. That was May. Well, two months later, here we are in mid-July, and the union says, no, we're filing a grievance. We weren't included. Again, yes, you weren't included. So they weren't included. They were ignored. Now they want to do a policy. They said they're going to have meetings. Great. They're going to have meetings. Too little, too late. The policy is already crafted. Maybe they get some minor concessions out of this about things like I'm talking about. How does it work when some players want to stay in, some want to go out? Has it, is it anything to do with holding your hand up? What about that? What about uh, arm in arm? Are those things allowed? Obviously, the union wants involvement. But again, where were they in May? Well, I can tell you where they were. They were being ignored by ownership once again. And it points to the relationship. We have a lack of trust, a mistrusting relationship. It's non-communicative. It's not even friendly. Between the union and the league, we're seven years into a collective bargaining agreement, an extraordinary term of 10 years, yet, yet, we have no labor peace. Everything's grievance, everything's uh, uh, litigation, everything's against everyone. So it never really comes out that this is something to work out. So what we end up having is we have this bad relationship between the union and the league, and it comes ends up in all these situations where, okay, we're filing a grievance, but maybe we'll talk. But we'll talk with the threat of a grievance. But we'll talk after the policy is already done, and the owners have no incentive to change the policy. They're not going to give any concessions. So, again, we're stuck with it. I, I say this all the time. We now have the two leaders, DeMory Smith and Roger Goodell, both extended with contracts passed the expiration of this CBA in 2021, yet we still hear Armageddon and it's going to be a lockout, it's going to be a strike. Well, no, it doesn't have to be. So they could pick up the phone, get together, New York, D.C., they're very close, 
have lunch, have dinner, go out with their wives, have a beer, have a glass of wine, and start talking. But there doesn't seem to be any impetus to do that. There's no communication uh, link, it seems. And again, we're left with this NFL, NFLPA. They ignore each other, and they end up in fights. That's where we are on the anthem policy. Do I think the anthem policy is going to change much? No. Will there be some tweaks to satisfy the players? Maybe. Uh, it's still a policy that's crafted with kind of an anti-player, prote- anti-player protest theme to it, despite the NFL meeting with Malcolm Jenkins and all these players and, and funding causes and having some, it looked like, honest and open communication back in the fall. Now we're back to we only talk through lawyers, grievances, etc., because the NFL ignored them. And that's where we are on that. So there it is. The new anthem policy crafted in May is now being fought by the union in July. It's kind of a continuing pattern of being ignored, coming back with a grievance. As I said, the grievance over the conduct policy failed. We'll see if this one even gets to a grievance, and if it does, if that fails as well. Next issue is, of course, the contracts. I think this time of year we talk about business of football mostly, but business of basketball is front and center with the NBA and all the contracts going on, obviously the most focus on LeBron uh, with his, whatever, $38.5 million average. Chris Paul got a $40 million average. All these huge contracts, even a guy that you never heard of, some of you, Zach Levine, a restricted free agent, gets four years, $80 million. These numbers are off the charts. And I point out every year how it kind of points to the NFL players sitting at the children's table when it comes to compensation. Let me point that out again. It's not the big numbers, even though they're staggering to see Chris Paul making $40 million and, and numbers like that, $160 million over four years. But what really is staggering is the reality of these contracts, the security that they give NBA players compared to the lack of security of NFL players. To wit, if you have an NFL player making these big numbers, we see it all the time, maybe $80, $90, $100 million. But maybe some of that first year, second year, and in elite cases of elite players, three years, is secure, but the rest are really team options. In the NBA, you make a contract five years, eighty million; five years, a hundred million; four years, one hundred sixty million. Like Paul, it's real money. If you get cut, if things go south, if you get traded, if teams don't want you, you still get paid. In the NFL, they readily walk away from these contracts. We see it every year. The best illustration is in February and early March, where we see teams walk away hundreds of millions of dollars of potential contract value gone just flush down the toilet. The only thing remaining for NFL teams is cap ramifications. That's not cash. It's just leftover cap. And what we see now is NBA, it's real money. So the question of years is often brought up. In the NFL, the teams are fine giving out years. Years don't mean much. They'll tell you, yeah, you can have five years, six years, seven, eight, ten-year deal. Because usually the only first year or two years, or in the most extreme cases, three years, like a Matt Ryan recently, are guaranteed, and the rest is kind of at the team option. Those linemen for the Cowboys, Teron Smith, Zach Martin, they got two years of guarantees, and then it could go on potentially five more years, potentially eight more years. I mean, these aren't contracts. They're suggestions past the early years, which are low risk for the team. Those are NFL deals. So when we talk about... The numbers, yeah, NBA has huge numbers, $150, $160 million. But we see on the NFL, too. Not quite that much. The problem is the security. It's so different. 
Now, Kirk Cousins breaking the mold on a fully guaranteed contract was great. Three years, uh, a little under $90 million. But that really didn't push the envelope too far. Because we've seen three-year guarantees, albeit with extra years remaining, it's better with Cousins. But he had the extreme leverage to try to get that fourth year. And I heard that Minnesota would never, ever do with a fourth year. And that's where years matter, right? That's like an NBA deal where you're trying to get that fourth year. They wouldn't do it with the Vikings. Uh, They would only do three years. So that's the difference here. And listen, I think NBA contracts at one point weren't guaranteed. Of course they weren't. But somehow they made it through. Here are the rationalizations that I always hear. I get a lot of reaction when I point these things out. Some of it is very supportive and saying, you're right, this is ridiculous. Uh, I got Russell Okung, the union rep, the player for the L.A. Chargers, who's negotiated his own contract, one of the more astute players in the league. He said I inspired a tweet storm from him. So that was nice to hear. And then he did quite a tweet storm on the same issues. The other part of it is I hear from people saying, no, 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 you, you got to recognize a few things. Number one, they always say, well, the NFL is a vicious sport. It's a violent sport. You can't guarantee contract because the injury rate's so high. Uh, duh, that is exactly why you should guarantee contracts. It's a great argument. I used it for 10 years as management if you're ownership. But if you're a player, you got to push back against that. You got to say the opposite because these players have the shortest shelf life among professional athletes because it's the highest injury rate because longevity is the is clearly the lo- the the shortest of any of these sports they should have guarantees you could play that argument the other way and i think players need to push that uh, the other argument you hear is well season it's only 16 games in the nfl and it's 80 in the nba and 100 something in the in baseball well okay first of all I don't think anyone's suggesting on that side that NFL players need to play 80 games or close to it to have the security of NBA contracts. The other part that where this, to me, this argument's irrelevant is season lengths are similar between practice and playing and off season. The NFL players are at work six, I mean, seven, eight months a year. Same as NBA, same as baseball. So it's not like NFL players just show up on Sundays for 20 weeks. It's much more than that. So I just think that argument's kind of irrelevant. The, the argument that has a little merit that everyone points to is, well, the NFL has 53 players a team. The NBA only has 15. Well, that's true to a point. A couple of things. One, yeah, the NBA has a salary cap of $102 million for 15 players, average of $6.67 million. The NFL has a salary cap of $177 million for 60-something players a team, including practice squad. That's $2.something million. How much bigger does it have to be? And the NFL is not an easy per player compensation thing of that two points because you have all this extra stuff on NBA caps, like all this extra proration. Take an example, Tony Romo, over these last year and this year, not part of the Cowboys, counting $20 million on their cap. That's an average of $10 million per year that could be used for active players and is not. Because of Roma, because of that proration, because of all the renegotiations they did, stays on the cap means that you're not paying players an average, <clears throat> a per compensation average based on 177 million. You're really paying a lot less. That's a lot less to average out. Uh, so 10 million at least, and that's just one player. So you see this happen all across the board. Uh, listen, on the number of players argument. That's a pretty crude way, and I know people advance that argument, even union leadership has. But does that mean any league with less players per team than NFL should make more than NFL players? Of course not. Uh, should Major League Soccer players make more than NFL? Should 
WNBA? Should arena football pick a sport? Uh, NHL, I think NHL players, NHL players may already do make more than NFL, should they? The revenues are drastically lower. And just a point on that, we can talk and carp about the NFL as everyone does and how cool the NBA and their stars are, but come on. I mean, the NFL, for all the carping about player protests and concussions and everything else, it is still king. I mean, the ratings for LeBron and Steph Curry, and the, I mean, they're like average ratings for a Sunday afternoon game in October So of NFL. So you see they're still king, and the revenues do matter, and that's my whole point. So, again, NFL compensation versus NBA, it is inferior. Uh, some will say that's fine. It should be understood. I'm just pointing out that these deficiencies can be had. Two ways to cure the guarantee issue. Number one, individual players with extreme leverage to push the envelope like Cousins did and push it further for that fourth year, for that fifth year. Will Aaron Rodgers be that person that gets a guarantee beyond a third year? Right now, I don't think he's got the leverage to do so because the Packers, I've been in that seat, say, well, you got two years left. Why would he do that? Maybe next year if he waits. And, I, and then there's franchise tag threats after that. So, you know, the franchise tag is a powerful weapon, not so much to use, but to threat to use. That's what we're dealing with there. Uh, you know, will players with extreme leverage push the envelope on, on guarantees? It's got to be someone that maybe gets the free agency like Cousins. Those are tough. The other issue is collective. Uh, the union needs to be a better job of collective guarantees. In other words, minimum spends. We have minimum spends. I've talked about this before. They're not... You know, 89% of teen spending, it seems high. It's not really that high. I think it should be like 95 to 98%. And the inspection periods every four years, four years, that's not very long. I mean, that's too long. It should be the yearly or at least every other year. Um, so teams can kind of get around the spending requirements. If you get the collective spending on an annual basis inspection and up to 97% or something, then like, whoa, okay, now you have true guarantees and not so much individual but collective where you know teams are spending. And if they cut players like they do in March, they won't just say, well, we're not going to replace them. And they won't have $30 million of cap room to bring over every year and then bring it over again. And you'll really see the spending. So we can sort of solve that issue on two fronts and individual and collective, but it's a lot. It's a big ask. It's a big ask because in any negotiations – the incumbent, the way it's always been, has more leverage than the ones that are trying to get something new. And that's what we're dealing with with the NFL uh, and NFLPA. So that's where we're on contracts. Uh, I point that out every year. We see the massive contracts. I tell players in the NFL to avert their eyes. It, uh, it is that time of year where NBA contracts are really showing how strong they are, especially compared to NFL. I mentioned earlier the player conduct policy in 2014. It was interesting because that was a lot of fanfare about an exemplist and a paid leave in light of what happened with Greg Hardy and Adrian Peterson. But you know what? Uh, it really hasn't been used since. Here we are in 2018. We haven't really seen that. We haven't seen paid leave. Uh, we really hadn't seen the six-game suspension until uh, Ezekiel Elliott. But anyway, now we have it. I think there's a textbook example here, LaShawn McCoy. We're talking about some disturbing allegations of violence towards his ex-girlfriend, Instagram posts, violence towards a dog, perhaps, allegations. Uh, a lot of disturbing stuff about LaShawn McCoy, who is the most visible player on the Bills, perhaps, maybe the most famous player on the Bills. And 
you know, what happens here, sort of taking you inside, my contact on all these issues, and of course, this is the time of year, you're worried about those phone calls in the middle of the night during the dead period in the NFL. You don't expect one on kind of a senior level play on your team. You usually think it's going to be the young guys. Uh, in this case, it did happen, and it's LaShawn McCoy. So what happens? Uh, well, the Bills huddle. My point of contact is always the agent. That happens to be Drew Rosenhaus here. The Bills huddling with Drew Rosenhaus. Drew's in a tough spot. He's got to be loyal to his client, but he's got to be a relationship builder with the Bills and see what happens. Um, you know, so you're going to have the Bills' potential discipline, but usually they leave it to the league. It's always this, let's leave it to Roger, let him figure it out. And that's what seems to be going on here. I just think what, what we see with the Bills and McCoy, uh, the good news is there's time. It's not any deadlines, no games coming up. The bad news is there's not a lot of time. There's games coming up. And everyone's going to lawyer up, and, you know, Sean's probably not going to say much to them. And from the NFL point of view, they'll put security on it. Somebody will be going through all the files and police reports and seeing if there's discipline. It does give you the opportunity to use this little used, brought out of the cobwebs four years ago, commissioner exemplist. And if that happens, it happens. So then we see a different way of dealing with it where we have an exemplist, uh, LaShawn McCoy kind of put on ice while they figure out what's going to happen. If there's going to be suspension, if it's going to be further discipline. Suspend, uh, exemplist will be with pay. So it's a different situation than without pay. Um, suspension, of course, would be without pay. We'll see what happens. I think this is a tough thing for the NFL and the Bills. It's not a good look because you have one of the marquee players in the league at this point. This, again, harkens back to 2014 when you had Ray Rice, another top running back. People ask me today, do you think LaShawn McCoy will play again? Well, I think he's at a different stage than Rice, even though Rice was reinstated. No one signed him. Probably a little bigger, stronger. People think he's got a little more shelf life. And again, depending what happens, we're not going to see video like Rice, which obviously was damning for any team that wants to sign him. So I think he will. But again, uh, the league's going to take into account past behavior. There may have been some questionable character issues on McCoy in the past with a party bus, I remember, or something like that here in Philadelphia. We'll see where this goes, but something to watch uh, in the business of football. What's going to happen to LaShawn McCoy? Last thing is the franchise tag. As you hear this, we got a deadline Monday the 16th. Is anyone going to get the tag? Well, uh, there are people like Demarcus Lawrence, Demarcus Joyner, of course, Le'Veon Bell. I don't think anyone's going to be a long-term deal this year. I just don't haven't heard about any negotiations. Of course, deadlines for action. If there are negotiations, I would expect, yeah, something will happen right? by 4 o'clock on Monday the 16th because – Deadlines make it happen. That's been the history of franchise tag. We think about all the players done at the deadline, whether it's Von Miller, whether it's uh, there was Damaris Thomas, there was Des Bryant, Mo Wilkerson with the Jets one year. It just happens all the time that way. Here we'll see. The Le'Veon Bell thing, I don't think it's going to happen. I think he's going to miss some training camp. Why not? Who wants to go to training camp if you're not signed? And I think there'll be threats or thoughts or uh, people thrown out that'll miss time in the season. I don't think any of that'll happen. Uh, I just think secretly, secretly, I think the Steelers will kind of be okay with him missing time. Why not, right? Uh, miss training camp. I'd put running backs like him in, in bubble wrap through training camp anyway. But here's the thing. That's an impossible deal to do. There's no running back market. 
at the top level like Levy and Bell. He is the top of the market. Why would the Steelers do a long-term deal at that level when they could get a short-term deal at that level, a one-year deal, and just go year to year with a, with a running back, this position with the shortest shelf life in the league, and that's where you are. So I just think that's going to be an issue always with Levy and Bell. There's, there's just nothing to negotiate off of. I mean, the biggest free agent deal, Jarek McKinnon, I think seven a year with the with the 49ers, he's not the level of Bell. Bell's twice that, but he's not going to get a deal twice that on a long-term deal. The Steelers will just sit and wait and play him on the franchise tag another year. I just think that's where that's going. Thanks for listening to the Business Sports Podcast with Andrew Brandt. Follow me on Twitter at Andrew Brandt. Listen to the podcast anywhere, RossTucker.com, Stitcher, iTunes. Give us a good rating. Tune in wherever you hear your podcasts. And I'll be back next week with another edition of The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Thanks for listening to The Business of Sports with Andrew Brandt. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also get additional insider insight by listening to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, Fantasy Feast, Even Money, and College Draft Podcast, all at RossTucker.com or wherever podcasts are found.